Well, good morning. Um, it's good to see everyone. I'm glad we got rain, but I'm sort of glad it's not raining right now. So um, we're, we're here and we're dry. So that's a good thing. If you would, um, turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 2. Um, we'll begin in verse 12 today. Um, as we uh, continue in this series, we're getting closer and closer to really um, bringing Samuel into view. But today we we're going to look at the priest wickedness. That's the priest plural. Um, we're beginning to consider the sons of Eli this morning. Um, Eli, if you remember, is the high priest at this time. Um, his sons, Hophni and Phineas, are also serving as priests um, in their tabernacle. We were first um, kind of, oh, my clicker's not working. Oh, there, now it's working. Uh, first introduced to them back in chapter 1. Um, Elkaniah used to go up year by year from his city to worship, sacrifice the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. Uh, in many ways, I believe they represent um, sort of the worst of the nation of Israel at this time. Uh, it's very likely, in fact, that they were influencing um, the moral behavior of the nation. Um, Judges 21, 25, you know, that phrase we've seen multiple times. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's really the way they were living, unfortunately. Now, um, when you talk about Eli and you talk about his sons or you talk about anybody and their children, um, things tend to get a little dicey. You know, that's just sort of the way we are. Um, we like to talk about everybody else's kids, but we don't like to talk about ours probably. But um, Eli's parenting is going to be one of the things kind of called into question uh, over the next few weeks. And we're going to continually see this contrast between um, Hophni and Phinehas, their wickedness, their sin, and, and little Samuel growing up in the, um, the nurture and admonition of the Lord. He's um, a righteous young man. He's seeking God. There's always that contrast lingering and so in many ways, there's even a comparison drawn between Eli um, and his parenting and Hannah and, and Elkaniah and their parenting. It's just inescapable. Now, speaking of children, I, I heard about three mothers who were sitting on a park bench, and um, they were talking about how much their sons loved them. And the, the first lady said, you know that expensive painting in my hallway? Well, um, that was my son's gift to me for my 75th birthday. He sure does love his mom. And um, the second lady said, well, that's nothing. Uh, you know that nice new Cadillac I'm driving? Well, um, that's for my son, it, just because he loves me, you know. Um, that's how much he loves his mother. And the third lady said, well, you know, I can get you, I, I've got you beat on that. Uh, my son, he goes to the therapist three times a week, and all he talks about is his mother. Um, so, um, anyway, well, maybe we should read our text for the day. Why don't you stand with me? Out of reverence and respect, let's read 1 Samuel 2, um, 12 through 22. Um, 1 Samuel 2, starting in verse 12. Um, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Verse 15, Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. 
verse 18, Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkaniah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So they would then return to their home. Verse 21, Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. You may be seated. <clears throat> Now, we don't know how long this kind of behavior was reflective of Eli's sons, but um, we seem to be able to, I think you can infer that it's been a while. Um, we also know, though, as we've seen with Hannah's suffering and, um, and her barrenness and then eventually her pregnancy, we know that God is sovereign, and we know that God is watching. We know that um, He will, in His timing, judge the wicked, reward the righteous, if only in eternity. Okay, so we have to know that to be true. Um, you may remember Hannah's song from last week, Talk no more so proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. So I think we've got to understand as we're walking into this text, God knows exactly what's happening. He's seen this, and it's one of the reasons why Samuel has been brought onto the stage. Okay, um, Israel needs Samuel. Um, these wicked priests uh, deserve judgment, and it's all sort of looming as we begin to break down kind of their, their wickedness. As you start looking at it, you see ignorance right from the beginning. Verse 12, and I, I don't think I'm overstating this. The language backs it up pretty plainly. Uh, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Um, and I'm not just speaking in terms of their ignorance of God. They didn't know the Lord. That's certainly ignorance. But also just their, their ignorance, their arrogance. It takes one sentence there to establish this. The sons of Eli were worthless men. Um, that's a, a brutal word in, in Scripture. Um, in the original language, it's even worse. Uh, in the Hebrew, um, it's more of a... Um, kind of a euphemism, you might say, for sons of Satan. It was sons of Belial. Um, uh, it's wicked. It's uh, demonic almost. Um, there's a similar phrase in 1 Corinthians 6.15, same language. What accord is Christ with Belial or with demons or Satan? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? That's the language being used of these men. We've seen this phraseology used before in some wicked situations. Judges 19.22, you may remember um, when we did our series on, on Judges and um, the sin of the men of Gabeah, uh, these were worthless men, as the language used. They were making their hearts merry. They were getting drunk. Um, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. Um, they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house, that we may know him. Um, they were interested in uh, doing some very wicked things. Uh, they raped and murdered the Levites' concubine, if you remember the rest of that sordid story. So these were worthless men. Now you see the same phrase, same descriptor used of the two priests of God serving in the temple at this time, Hopni and Phineas. Um, they're, they're wicked. There's no escaping that. A worthless man plots evil. It's always on his mind, and his speech is like a scorching fire. Interestingly enough, this same word is the word that Eli tried to label Hannah with when they first met in um, chapter 1. You may remember she came to the, the tabernacle and she was praying and she was vexed and um, Eli assumed she was drunken and he called her a worthless woman. And her response, 
Do not regard your servants as a worthless woman. Um, don't, don't, don't describe me that way. Um, for all along, I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Um, he was wrong about her, as we saw, and he was certainly, at the same time he's trying to call her worthless, he's ignoring the clear reputation of his own sons, who indeed were worthless, certainly in the eyes of God. Um, but we can't stop with just that descriptor. We've also seen the second sentence in this verse, which is they did not know the Lord, which certainly I think gets even worse. How can you be priests of the Lord who do not know the Lord? I think it's a fair question. Um, but it's an awful lot like our culture today, having preachers and teachers and pastors who do not believe in the Word of God, and yet they stand before churches and teach it. Um, that's a problem. Uh, that's an issue. Um, it's, it's the same kind of ignorance, I believe. And so, but we also have to remind ourselves that we're not talking about 2023. We're not talking about a denomination or um, the inerrancy of the Word of God when we look at this text. We're talking about the nation of Israel. We're talking about the priest of God serving in Israel's tabernacle. We're talking about God's special people, the children of Abraham, Jehovah's special people. Uh, in Exodus 19.6, we saw God speak to him, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests. The nation of Israel was supposed to be a city set on a hill, uh, a people set apart, um, seeking after their holy God. They as individuals, not just their priests, but the nation was to be a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So then you come and you find in this text that their priests themselves were wicked. They were worthless. Um, of course, the nation has lost its mind because their, their preachers, their teachers, their priests had lost their minds. And I think that's the picture um, we're given. Um, Charles Spurgeon has put it pretty simply and said they had assumed a position to which they had no right. And I certainly agree with that. They should not have been serving in this regard. But this ignorance of God, the fact that they did not know God, is really just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to their wickedness. There are sins, you might say, of omission, um, ignorance, when you do not know something. Um, in this case, they did not know God. But then there are sins of commission, um, active deeds of wickedness, and that's what we see next. Um, from ignorance, we go to intimidation. Uh, now, the next four verses have a lot of detail. Um, we're not going pick it, to pick it apart, but uh, I think you can listen to the language that God's Word uses, and we'll know how negative this was. The custom... Um, meaning what the priest typically did, okay? Not, not what God had ordained, but the custom of the priest. What Hopney and Phineas did um, with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come um, while the meat was boiling, the three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Nobody got a pass, okay? Moreover, and really, as we'll see in a moment, moreover in this context means that's bad, but moreover, what's about to be um, shared is even worse. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw and if the man said to him, and this is a scenario where if this man actually knew the law and the way that the, the sacrifices were supposed to be used, it's likely he would push back and say, let them burn the fat first, then take as much as you wish. That was the way it was supposed to be done. He would say, no, you must give it now, and if not, I'll take it by force. Literally meaning, I'll show you who's boss. I'll take it whether you want to give it or not. Um, 
we don't have to get lost in the minutiae of all this regarding the sacrificial system um, to know that this is wrong. Okay, the, the language itself helps us see that. Um, but uh, if, if you wanted to do a deep dive, you could. Uh, everything we just read in these four verses is a corruption of the sacrificial system that's established in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And again, we're not talking about you know, something that was happening out in the backwoods. We're talking about what was happening at the tabernacle of the Lord. Um, we sang about holy ground this morning. Well, if there was one place in Israel that was to be holy, it was at the tabernacle where the Ark of the Covenant still remained and where the Shekinah glory was supposed to arrive and where they were supposed to sacrifice on behalf of the nation's sins on the Day of Atonement. This is a holy place. And everything they're doing is a corruption of the system that God gave them by which they were to worship God. Um, and again, you see it in verses 13 and 15, I believe, um, two very simple phrases. First, it says the custom of the priests with the people, which is the signal for what they were doing is not what God said, but it's what they wanted to do. They were doing what was right in their own eyes. And then again, it adds in verse 15, and moreover, um, on top of that, going beyond that, even worse, um, everything about this text is a corruption. Uh, you could read Leviticus 3 if you wanted to chase that rabbit. Um, verses 3 through 5 talks about the peace offerings, the food offering, um, what they were to do with the kidneys and the loins, the long lobe of the liver, all those things. Um, Leviticus 7, 31 through 33 talks about how they should burn the fat on the altar, which is another thing they were not doing properly. And it talks about um, the portion that the, the priests were to get. They're just two snippets from Leviticus. There's a lot more there. It tells us how the offerings were supposed to work. Um, the, the point I'll give you is this, and let's keep it simple. Everything that was done at the tabernacle with any sacrifice that was rendered was codified. They knew what was to be cut, what was to be burned, what was to be boiled, what was to be taken, um, what was to be given to the priest. Um, for their portion, what was to be given back to the family? You may remember a few weeks ago, Elkanah and his family offered a sacrifice. They were given a portion back, portion back, or they held a portion back for them to eat. All that's codified. There was no guesswork here. They knew exactly what they were supposed to do. And they weren't following any of the regulations that God had given them. And so we've got to understand that this is an absolute corruption uh, of the system. Uh, they were taking more than the portions that were legally prescribed to them. They were taking it before even rendering it properly to the Lord. And they were even taking portions that were reserved for the Lord in Scripture. They're making a mockery of the entire procedure. And as these verses point out, some of the people knew it. Um, if the man said to him, this was a situation where you had a, a, a devout Jew. He had offered many sacrifices in the past, I'm sure. And he came to the tabernacle, and he knew how this was supposed to work. He said, let him burn the fat first. Then take as much as you wish. Let me render to God what is to be rendered to God. Let me honor him first, and then you do what you want. And they would say, no, but we'll take it by force. They refused to comply with the standards of the law. And they were bullying the people into being accessories to this crime. They were um, making them mock the most holy, most intimate part of worship before the Lord. I would argue there's nothing more wicked than when your spiritual leaders are encouraging the church to engage in wickedness. God's Word makes sure we see this for what it is. It's ignorance, it's intimidation, it's irreverence. 
Thus, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. You, you may say, well, how do you know about the Levitical system? You know, how do you know you're reading it right? I don't really have to know I'm reading it right to understand what this text says. You follow me? Thus, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. We can, um, we can just take that sentence and know that everything we just read was wrong. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. There are things in life today that spiritual leaders are calling good that's wrong. Um, we're reinterpreting Scripture. We're ignoring clear Scripture. We're um, dismissing things that clearly call certain behavior sin. And my point is simply, it's not complicated. If God's Word says it's wrong, it's wrong. If God's Word says it's evil, it's evil. What they were doing was wrong, clearly. There's, there's no way you can pull any punches on that. And it was, it was not just sort of wrong. It was, very, it was sin that was very great in the sight of the Lord. Again, I would just argue us, we should have a caution. Anytime we choose to reinterpret what Scripture is clear about, what is sin and what is wrong in the sight of the Lord, um, we're treading on very, very thin ice. All right, It tells us that they treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Um, that's an ugly, ugly word in Scripture. That phrase, it literally means scorned or despised. Um, it shows up in some of the very worst, dark places in God's Word, um, including David's sin with Bathsheba. Um, 2 Samuel 12, we'll eventually get there, like in 2027 or something like that. Anyway, um, I think I'm kidding, but I'm not sure. Anyway, um, nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, you've despised Him. Okay, the, the adultery that he committed, um, having Uriah murdered, all those things was absolute wickedness. Israel was guilty of the same sin when it questioned God, refused to enter the promised land uh, <clears throat> as it had sent the spies out into Canaan. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? When you don't trust God, when you second-guess God, when you undermine the, the will of God, when you question his love and, and his ability to deliver on his promises, you're scorning him, you're despising him. It doesn't mean in our flesh we won't fear. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm simply saying when you determine in your heart that God cannot be trusted and you turn your back on him, you've despised him, you've scorned him, and that's what they did. It was still true of Israel near the end of God's judgment during the days of Isaiah. Um, Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble, as dry grass sinks down in the flames, so their root will be as rottenness, and their blossom go up like dust, for they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised, same word, scorned, ridiculed the word of the Holy One of Israel. And I would just submit to you that we need to be very careful that we're not guilty of similar irreverence. How have we treated the word of God with contempt um, in our generation, um, in our church even, in our homes? Just as they conducted the sacrificial system according to their own preferences, I'm afraid we're repeating the same sin when we reinterpret God's word to condone sexual sin or, or whatever other sin it is that we want to justify. This kind of evil always leads to disaster and the judgment of God. You may remember Korah's rebellion in number 16, but if the Lord creates something new, now they, they had done something outside of the will of God. They were arguing, and, and God basically showed up and said, if, if, God, if, if I do something you've never seen before, you'll know this is wicked. It's despised. And the ground opens its mouth, swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down to Sheol, then you shall know that these men have what? Scorned or despised the Lord. And if you know your history, it happened. Um, now, I think we could certainly make a case that God's servants, 
priests, pastors, deacons, you name it, are held to even a higher standard on this kind of thing. This isn't just a message for everybody sitting in the pew, but it's one for every pastor, every preacher, every church. Um, as theologian Bill Arnold has put it, um, proximity to God's work is no substitute for submission to the grace of God. There's not a, a man standing in a pulpit today um, that doesn't need to answer to God, that doesn't need the grace of God, um, that doesn't need to remember the Word of God and what He's doing. And, and so, you know, when a staff member, um, someone in our church, when they, um, they can't rein in their temper, when they're bullying people, intimidation, ignorance, irreverence, we're going to have to address that. That's the, the obligation we have. God is addressing that in this text. Um, but also, you could expand it. Um, two other things that are always pertinent. Malachi 1, um, 6 through 8, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? We don't want to despise God. If I'm a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you? O priest who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame and sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept it or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. So in that text, it was that they, were, they weren't um, bringing offerings to God. They weren't even really tipping God, which has kind of become our custom. They were bringing him the weak and the wicked and the sick, and they were withholding the best from God, and we're to bring him our first fruits. So sometimes, I think on a text like this, we like to overcomplicate it, and we like to miss what's really being said. We like to make obedience to God's word really, really hard. It's not that hard. God deserves to be honored. He deserves to be respected. He is a holy God, and we're in his presence even now. I love what Thomas Akempis has written many years ago. I would rather feel contrition than know how to define it. Don't make it complicated. Don't feel like you have to have a theological education to understand what we're reading. These men were wicked. They were not honoring God. They were living in rebellion, and God's going to move, and he's going to judge them. And if that's you or me, we need to get our hearts right. Amen? Uh, we need to cry out to a holy God, and we need to embrace the fact that our merciful holy God has offered us grace through the shed blood of Jesus. There is an ability to be restored and forgiven and redeemed. But none of us have the right to redefine the Word of God when it comes to what is and is not sin, and that applies to obviously all things in the church. Um, and any compromise, I believe, is irreverence. It's disdain, it's corruption, it's scorn. That's the way this word um, is to be looked at, and it awaits the judgment of God. But we press on in the text. We've seen ignorance, we've seen uh, intimidation, we've seen irreverence. Now we see something really, really fascinating. I think normally it would certainly be fair to say that we're supposed to see imitation. Think about the setup. Um, Hannah has been given Samuel um, a, a glorious birth, an answer to her barrenness. She surrendered him back to the Lord as she promised. Um, he's now living there on the temple ground or the tabernacle grounds. And the, the two priests ahead of him um, in age, we figure about 10, 12 years older than him, the two guys doing what he's being raised up to do that he would have naturally followed and, and imitated are Hopney and Phineas. Now, how many of y'all think it's a good idea for Samuel to learn everything about being a priest from Hopney and Phineas? 
okay? That's the scenario we're in, though. These would have been his, his natural, uh, the natural folks that he would have looked up to, okay? But let's look at his service. The boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. Um, that word boy is actually the same word used to describe the sons of Eli. It, it really means more young men. I remember in Israel's custom, uh, a young man became uh, essentially an adult by age 13. Um, so we don't know exactly the ages it's describing here. We'll see fairly shortly that Hopney and Phineas, um, at least one of the two, have families. We think they both had families, so they're probably um, older. Um, but one way or the other, that's uh, it, it's fairly young. Um, of course, if you're really young, you probably think it's fairly old. It's depending on perspective, I guess. But we figure he's an early teen, and they're probably more in their early 20s. Um, it goes on in verse 18. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. Um, it's interesting to me that in neither one of those snippets about his service before the Lord... Okay, It says he's ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli in the first verse. Then in verse 18, it says he's ministering before the Lord. It doesn't even mention Eli. It never mentions Hopney and Phineas. It's as if he's on an island, and they're doing their thing, and he's staying as far away as he can from them. I, I don't think that's a guess. Uh, I think that's what we're supposed to derive from this. I, I think there's, there's no doubt that Samuel understood from the very, very beginning that those two men were not his idols. They were not men he was supposed to, to follow. It's, they're not the ones that he's supposed to imitate. And yet... Um, when we think about all this, I think we have to understand the way humanity works. Um, how natural it would have been for him to follow in their shoes and to imitate um, what Eli, I guess, had, had taught them and how they were living. Um, and in his shoes, how many of us would have had uh, the wherewithal, I think, to separate ourselves from their influence and how many of us would have just pitched right in and gone and done what everybody else was doing? question to ask yourselves these wicked young men by the way were capable of bullying older worshipers of god at the tabernacle so clearly whatever they were doing they were doing it with some force um, they were able to intimidate adults okay so they weren't kids and yet little samuel is is set apart from them and he's not following along with what they're doing again i think it tells us that he's much more uh, like the young man that Hannah had prayed for uh, than anything else. Um, 1 Samuel 1, 28, Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he's lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. Samuel is, is different from the very, very beginning. And I think even Eli knew it. Uh, verse 20 of this chapter, Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife. And when they regularly came to the tabernacle to worship, say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. Uh, I believe it's a simple way of saying... She was barren. She cried out to the Lord. The Lord answered her prayer. Um, she promised that she would return that young man to the Lord's service, and she's done so. May the Lord show her good. Do her um, as she deserves. So they would return to their home. I think Eli could tell that Samuel was different. He's recognizing that God had heard her and answered her prayer, and she had fulfilled her promise, and here little Samuel is as living proof of that. And so El El Eli prayed that God would be gracious to her. Um, but understand something. She had not surrendered her son to Eli. She had given him to the Lord. Now, let me ask you, who are, who are you giving your children to? 30, 40, 50 years ago, we probably didn't have to say this, but I, I think it's important that we say this now. 
the government may want your kids, but your kids do not belong to the government. Your neighbors, your community, uh, whoever it may be, there's a lot of people clamoring for the hearts of our children, but if you're a mama and a daddy, those children are yours. Now, are they really yours, or are they entrusted to you by a loving, gracious God who gave them to you? Okay, understand, we're all underneath the headship of the Lord, and our children are a blessing. They're a stewardship. We're to, um, we're to nurture them and, and grow them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Ultimately, they're a gift of God, and they're a stewardship that we have to, um, to take care of. And I believe this text is trying to tell us something about um, Hannah even though you would look at it on paper and you'd go I can't believe someone would take that little boy and turn him over to the, to the tabernacle service and there's Hopney and there's Phineas can't, I can't imagine how horrible that would be and how wrong it would all go but here's the reality when your heart's right and you pray to God and you trust your children to God and you believe that he's sovereign and you believe that he's in control and you allow him to lead and guide and you cry out to him day in and day out guess what even in the midst of a wicked tabernacle or a wicked community or a wicked world your children can grow up to honor and please the lord we've seen it happen because god is faithful and that's the picture that we're giving given here i believe and i think the text gives us a little insight into why we see his support next in verse 19 his mother used to make for him a, a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice We've got to understand that Hannah's prayers for her son did not stop when she conceived him or even when he was born. She continued to love him. She continued to pray for him. She continued to check in on him every chance she got. Every time it was time for them to return to the tabernacle, she was looking in on her son. And he always had a new robe to wear to remind him of her love. And so let's be honest. Samuel and Hopney and Phineas, Eli's sons, they all grew up in proximity to the Lord's tabernacle, right? They were all right there. They all had the, the same access to the truth of God. They all had, I think we could say, believing parents. So what's the difference between how they turn out? How, how can you explain little Samuel um, following God and honoring God and winding up being the prophet of God and uh, the last judge, however you want to characterize him, and the little Hopney and Phineas? being wicked men who corrupted the sacrificial system and wind up being judged of God. What's the difference? Well, uh, nobody likes to hear this these days, but um, I would argue it's free will, and it's something every single person in this room has. We all know people who were raised in, yes, there's, there's obviously lots of disparate homes and differences and all those things, but when you boil it all down, the reality is that you could put uh, two kids in the same home and they wind up being radically different. Anybody have kids that are different from one another? Okay, and, and you, well, is that nature? Is that nurture? Is that genetics? Well, again, you can make that as complicated as you want, but here's the reality. Certainly by a certain age, your children start making their own decisions, and they're responsible for it. They can live their whole lives going to their therapist and talking about mama, but at the end of the day, you get to an age where it's on you, and your decisions matter. 
And yeah, you can be haunted by your past, and some of that is, is the, you, you can be scarred and all that, but at some point you have to take control of your own life, certainly when it comes to your spirituality. And I think there's a time and a place where we have to decide we're going to do business with God, and we're going to answer to Him. Uh, Hebrews 3, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. In you, an evil, unbelieving heart. It's free will leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called the day, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. They had a choice to make, and we all have that same choice to make in terms of the gospel. The truth of the gospel is that we're all sinners in need of a Savior. Someone else might have it better than you, but at the end of the day, we all make conscious decisions to rebel against a holy God. Samuel, Hopney, Phineas, Hannah, Eli, you name it. We all have the same issue. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the truth. Whether your parents taught it to you or not, whether you want to accept it or not, it's still the truth. And the, the better news is that the truth is that God has made a provision for our sin. Not just a provision, but he's, he's given us a person to make provision for our sin. Romans 6, 23, the wage of sin is death, yes, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 3, 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe. See, the, the weight here is placed on free will. You have a decision to make. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The truth is the same for all of us. Maybe our homes were different. Maybe our education was different. Maybe our opportunities were different. But the reality is when it comes to spirituality, we're all given the freedom to choose whether or not we will accept the grace of God. You have a choice to make. And you can, through ignorance and irreverence, go your own way like Hopney or Phineas or like little Samuel. You can trust God and his word and his provision. I'll just read on in the text. We see his steadfastness next. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Hannah, of course, was rewarded for her trust in the Lord and her sacrifice, and God blessed her with five more children. But the emphasis here, I think, should remain on Samuel. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Same phrase the New Testament uses to refer to the spiritual growth of both John the Baptist and Jesus Christ as young men. I think it's a further reminder that he's following God, not Eli's wicked sons. And I guess, again, the point is that we all have the same choice. We're all given the same opportunity. As believers in Christ, if you're a part of the church, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We've been sworn to do the same things that Israel's been sworn to do. We're a holy people, people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Shame on the bride of Christ if we're compromising the clear word of God in our culture today. Because we're doing the exact same thing that Hopney and Phineas were guilty of. We have a choice to make. Are we going to honor God? Are we going to please God? You, you go on in, in a couple more verses. It says uh, in 1 Peter 2, it says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. But back to Eli's sons. They were not abstaining from the passions of the flesh as they were supposed to. Last thing we see this morning is immorality. Now, Eli was very old. He kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance 
to the tent of meeting. We'll consider Eli and his age and culpability as we press into the text in the weeks ahead. But for right now, our focus needs to remain on the sons of Eli as we finish. We've seen ignorance and intimidation and irreverence. You know what? Maybe we can show them a little grace because, as the text says, they did not know God. They were lost. So can we blame them for cutting corners with the religious practices of the tabernacle? Maybe it made little sense to them. Maybe they didn't even believe Jehovah God existed. But see, this immorality goes way, way beyond that. Because in their culture, sexual fidelity to one's spouse was a big deal. Adultery was known to be a sin punishable by death at this point, by the way. Okay, So the reality is what they're doing was so wrong, and it has... Uh, it goes well beyond any other misunderstandings about the law. The women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting uh, were volunteers, and they were treating them literally like the priestesses of Canaan at the time were treated. The text may say it discreetly, but the reality is it actually says it very, very clearly. They were fornicating with these women, and I would assume by force if necessary, if they're taking the offerings that way, they're probably doing this this way. So we've got to assume that the behavior is the same. And as we're going to see later on, these two men had wives and families of their own. So not only is this adultery, but I think you can make a case because of the force being used, it's rape. Can you think of anything more wicked to be happening in the tabernacle grounds? It's hard to imagine, but that's what's happening. And again, even if you don't know the standards of the law, in their culture, they certainly all knew it was wrong to sleep around with another man's wife or to force a woman to engage in sex with you when she did not want to. At least Israel always had considered that wrong. But I guess, you know, things change in culture, right? If you can't hear the sarcasm, you're not listening. But anyway, this is the kind of thing that happens when you do not know God, when you do not reverence God, when you allow the Word of God to be reinterpreted, when you say that it's an old, outdated book and it no longer applies. You begin to make a mockery of the most precious things, the things most precious to your family, but even more importantly, most precious even to God Himself. So friends, we have a challenge, you know, and I think about it in terms of 150 years of this church. Are we going to continue to imitate and align our lives by the person and work of Jesus Christ and the clear word of God? Or, or are we going to go the same way so many others have gone? Are we going to follow on the path of Hopney and Phineas and be worthless men who did not know God? We have a choice to make. I believe this church is going to continue to choose what it's always chosen which is the clear word of God, uh, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that's the choice before us. Obviously today, if you do not know Jesus Christ, as our musicians come, this is your opportunity to choose Jesus. Um, you have free will. He's not going to force himself on you. But the truth of the matter is, every one of us has a sin problem. Jesus came to deal with it. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, each and every day we're given an opportunity to make these kinds of choices and I pray that we would continue to choose the clear word of God and obey him. Let's stand and respond to him today.